The book of Genesis is the story of beginnings. Within its pages we meet Creator God, are introduced to mankind in all his glory and his shame, and get the first glimpses of the rescuer, Jesus Christ. You're listening to a sermon series on the first four of Genesis 10 stories by Pastor Stacy Potts. The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. All right, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 4. When you're turning, let me give you a quick update on what our calendar is going to look like for uh, May and June. It's going to be kind of odd months, got a number of breaks and things popping up in between here, so I thought I'd keep you up to speed. So we're obviously here today in Genesis 4, next week being Mother's Day, and given the large number of children that will be dedicated. Uh, We will not be in Genesis next week, or else it would take us four hours to have church. So we're going to... uh, going to shrink that down a little bit, do something different. On the 20th, we're going to be out at Munden Point, so that'll again be a different Sunday. On the 27th, we'll come back here. We'll be back in Genesis again. We'll actually be finishing Genesis 4 on the 27th. Uh, I think we're going to speed up a little bit just because the story is going to move it along faster, uh, really, from this point forward. Uh, The first Sunday of June, I will give us a conclusion, an overview of everything we've seen up to this point, just to kind of tie it all together, sort of a big smorgasbord sermon, not a little one for one chapter, but for the whole kit and caboodle, and then I'm not preaching the next three Sundays, so just to give you a fair warning, so you can know when you want to miss, Ed's preaching on the 10th, all right, there you go, how do you like that? Thank you. Uh, As preaching on the 10th, I'm taking that week off just for vacation. Uh, The kids will be gone to Chicago with Grandma and Grandpa, and so Jamie and I are having a week by ourselves. Woohoo! No no preaching that day. Uh, The following two weeks, uh, Jordan will preach one week. I think Isaac's preaching the other, and I'm going to take those weeks. We'll be right at the end of our due diligence period. All the stuff with McComas will be there if that's needing to have some special attention I'll be able to give myself to that as well as other projects we want to get done but I'll take the two Sundays off we'll still be here we'll be around if you need to contact me you can but that's the plan and then starting July we're going to jump into Genesis 5 with genealogies who's excited all right yes yes we're all excited about genealogies it will actually be pretty interesting I think I think You're in Genesis 4. Let's look at these uh, verses together here. We'll start, as always, in verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? You do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. 
Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erod, and Erod fathered Mahuyel, and Mahuyel fathered Methushel, and Methushel fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Namah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's vengeance is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are coming back now to this passage that we stopped in last week, trying to understand the difference in these two sons of Adam and Eve. Because we recognize here, Lord, that what we're seeing is not simply a story about the first murder. That here in these accounts of chapter 4, we are seeing the distinctions that separate all humanity. The the two kinds of people, the the two camps, the two categories that everyone on earth falls into, the, the two types of peoples that are present and intermingling on this earth. You are explaining to us here what happened to that perfect world you made and and also explaining why the world is like it is today. And so, Father, I ask that you will help us to be attentive to this truth because these are not stories simply for story's sake. This This is theological truth. This is the foundation of everything we believe and understand. And so, God, will you help us to see these stories in this manner this morning? Give Give us your eyes so that we can understand things the way you do. Lord, we have all come to these passages with various understandings from the past, things we had heard perhaps from other uh, places, things we have been taught as children. We may have approached these stories as nothing more than just just bedtime stories, but, but Lord, I pray that you will help us to see all these things differently as a result of our time in, in the text here over these past few weeks. And so, Lord, this morning as we come into it again, please bless this time and help us to understand them correctly, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Brent, one of the things I regularly uh, think about when I'm preparing a sermon is how will the message that I'm presenting change your life. And I know that might sound a little uh, um, 
not arrogant, but a little uh, hopeful, a little maybe far-reaching in terms of what I'm trying to do. But I do think there is a sense in which every time we come together and we center our minds around God's Word, something should change. What ought we to do after hearing the things that we hear? And it's that word ought there that has become very critical to me in my own understanding of what the difference between teaching and preaching is. And I may have shared this before with you at some point, I don't remember, but I want to share it again because it was pressing on my mind this week. But when someone teaches, they're, they're mainly just attempting to communicate information, okay? So I want you to know that the Declaration of Independence was signed on July 4, 1776, Okay? If that information passes from my mind to yours, and now it's in your mind and you know it, then I have accomplished my role as a teacher. Okay? You, as a student, have learned, and that's what I was trying to accomplish. But preaching is, to me, a little bit different. Yes, there are obvious elements of teaching involved. There's many, many pieces of information that I'm trying to communicate to you about the text, about what's happened, about what's going on, about history, theology, whatever. So there's aspects of that, but it's, but it's something more because what I'm trying to communicate to you is not intended to simply stay in your head. As if all I'm going for here is mere mental assent to the truths that I'm communicating. No, for me, when I'm preaching the scriptures, I'm trying to have this truth go into your mind and then permeate your entire life so that it changes who you are as a person. So that it becomes, it makes you become something different than what you were when you came in. I'm trying to help you show how you ought to live. And so, so my own little personal definition of preaching is, is very simple and it's just mine and it may not be very good, but it helps me. It helps me remember what I'm supposed to be doing week in and week out. For me, my definition of preaching is simply this, that preaching is teaching with an ought attached to it. That's it. I stand up here and I just try to open the scriptures and just teach you what's there. But at the end, when you walk out, there should be an ought. Now, that sounds simple, (laughs) but it's not. Not always, anyway. Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes you come to certain passages and everything's really clear, okay? The odds are just like sticking out from the pages for you to grab onto and, and, and look at. So you ought to be kind. You ought not to lie. Those are easy ones because you know what you're supposed to do. They're action-based. You can, at the end of the week, look back and say, was I kind? Yes or no. If I was kind, I did what I ought to do. Did I lie? No, that's good, because I ought not to lie, and so I I did what I was supposed to do. Those kinds of oughts are really, really easy, and I think that as a people, we like those oughts the best. But not all the oughts in Scripture are like that, and therein lies the problem, because some of the oughts in the Scriptures have to do with our attitude and our understanding. And so, for example, I would read a passage that would say that I ought to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I can't just go get in the car and do that. I mean, there's aspects in which it shows itself. I understand, okay? I, I, I don't, I'm not downplaying that, but I, I can't simply do an ought that affects my attitude. That, that's deeper and in many senses more difficult because more has to change inside of me to live out that ought the way that I'm supposed to live. And so those can be a little more tricky and then even trickier still are the oughts that have to do with our understanding. Because I really do think that there's a sense in which God simply wants us to see the world the way he does sometimes. 
to just simply have his mind, his understanding, his view of life and of the things around us. So you ought to know that everyone is a sinner. Right? Okay, if you know that, great. You accomplish that ought. Check that one off your list. It's not something you can do, but it's something that affects how you see the world around you. It's something that affects your understanding of the people that you interact with. And I fear that sometimes we're tempted to minimize or even disdain those kinds of oughts, the ones that affect our understanding, because we want to do. We want to make a a to-do list and check things off and and, and put it in our OmniFocus or getting things done or whatever organizational system you use so that at the end of the day, the end of the week, the end of the month, I can go back and check off all my all my oughts, and so when we run into ones that don't fit really nicely with that, we're tempted to just rush past them and and maybe feel like we were cheated somehow by the Scriptures because we didn't walk away with the the three or four things that we should do today to make our lives different. I'm telling you, though, folks, you can't rush past those kinds of oughts because they're critical. They're critical to our understanding, not just of the Scriptures, but of everything around us. And Genesis 2-4 to has been filled with those kinds of oughts. And that should make sense to you since I've been saying repeatedly over the last weeks and months that what this section is doing for us is helping us understand what happened to that perfect world that God made back in Genesis 1. Why isn't the world like that anymore? And then also helping us understand why the world is like it is today. When you look around at the people in your job, at your neighborhood, in your family, why are they like the way they are? Why does the world operate the way it does? See, Genesis 2-4 through is giving us an understanding of those things. And while we have certainly seen some things that we ought to do differently as a result of these chapters, there's been many, many more things that have simply been affecting our understanding and nothing more. And that's, that's huge, I think. Because if we can see the world the way that God sees it, it will help us know how we ought to live and ought to do in every other area of life. And so that's what we started working on last Sunday. We're here in this first tale of two, which is the tale of two kinds of people, here in verses 1 to 16. And we were trying to understand the difference between Cain and Abel there in verses 1 through 5. Both boys brought an offering to the Lord. Okay, we saw that. Abel and his offering were accepted. Cain and his offering were rejected. And the question that I tried to help us answer last time was, why? Why is Cain's offering rejected and Abel's accepted? And that's, that's a critically important question. Because if we do not answer that question right then nothing else in chapter 4 makes sense. Everything is contingent on this. And so we started by trying to figure out if the offering itself was the problem. Because remember, Cain brought an offering of produce, something from the ground, vegetables, fruit, whatever. He brings produce to the Lord. Abel brings a sheep. Is the problem that, that Abel brought the right kind of offering and Cain didn't? And I said, no, that's not the problem at all. And there was a number of reasons why it's not the problem. But the, the chief of which is simply the word that Moses uses there for offering. Throughout the Old Testament, it can refer to anything that the giver wants to give. Whether it's produce, wine, grain, oil, sheep, 
animals, gold, silver, material. It can be just about anything in the world that the giver wants to give. God is willing to accept those kinds of offerings. And so the the offering itself is not the problem. And yet it, it is the problem. Right? And I know that sounded contradictory last week, and it still sounds contradictory today, but it's the the right way of answering it. It's not that the offering itself is the problem. Rather, it's what the offering represents that is ultimately the real problem here in what is going on in the first part of the story. Cain gave an offering of the fruit of the ground, about as generic a comment as you can make, while Abel gave of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Abel gave the best of his best. Cain just gave something, anything really. And so the offerings then begin to show us something about the heart of each person. Abel saw God as someone who was worthy of his best, someone that he wanted to please, someone that he wanted to serve, someone that he wanted to show his devotion to. And Cain did not share Abel's view of God. Cain did not see God as being worthy of his best. He did not see God as someone that he wanted to please or serve. And so the offering of both boys reflects their heart. All Cain gave to God was a mere, and here was our key word, token of service. That's it. There was no heart behind his offering, and God doesn't like that. He never has. And so his response to these two boys, these two kinds of people here, is completely expected. He accepts Abel, the man, and his offering, and he rejects Cain, the man, and his offering. No other outcome would have made sense in the story. Now, that was where we stopped last time. Stopped very abruptly because... It needed to be stopped right there, okay? We stopped right there halfway through verse 5. We were simply trying to understand the difference in these two kinds of people represented by Cain and Abel. And I wanted you to see and understand what Bruce Waltke called Cain's sin of tokenism. This, this idea that he can come and go through the motions of religion with no, no heart behind it whatsoever. Today, now, we need to go even further still and understanding the difference between these two brothers, because we're not done. As I just mentioned last time, I I asked why Cain's offering wasn't acceptable to God. And I hope you recognize that that question was based on an external. Okay, We're looking at the offering, and we're saying, what's wrong with this offering? So I asked a question about an external, but when I gave you the answer... The answer wasn't an external answer, right? It was an internal answer. The the reason the offering wasn't accepted is because his heart wasn't right before God. Today, we need to go a step further and ask an internal question now. Why wasn't his heart right before God? Because until we understand that, we still don't understand the ultimate difference in these two boys. Why wasn't his heart right before God? Why didn't he want to serve him? Why didn't he want to please him? Why didn't he share Abel's view of God? They grew up in the same house. (laughs) They grew up in the same neighborhood. Everything in their environment, upbringing, was all the same, and God himself is involved in the midst of it. Why is Cain different? And if we answer that question correctly... It'll show us the ultimate difference between these two types of people, and it will help us see the world today the way that God sees it. Now, 
Before we can answer that question, I want to begin by just very quickly, and I mean very quickly, working us through the remainder of this first tale from halfway through verse 5 through verse 16. And I really debated how the best way to do this was if I should try to like intermingle my answer to the question with the text. And I said, no, let's just cover the text in one chunk, okay? We're going to go through all these verses as quickly as we can. And when we're done, I think you'll have a good base to come back and answer the question. And so let's, let's start exactly where we left off last time. In verse 5, after God had rejected Cain and his offering, we read this comment. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. And last time I touched on that very briefly, just simply explaining to you that that phrase there, that his face fell, meant that he became visibly angry. His countenance changed. That's the, that's the idea there. But what's interesting to me about this comment is who he's angry at. Have you ever stopped and, and, and thought about that question? There's really only three possibilities here. Either he's angry at God, or he's angry at his brother, or he's angry at himself. I can pretty much cut out the last one right off the bat. Okay, Nothing in the story indicates that he sees anything wrong with himself. But when it comes to between Abel and God, and I look at all the clues here, I'm pretty sure that he's angry at God. Because God is the one who had rejected him. God is the one who had just looked at his offering and said, no, thank you, you are not acceptable to me, neither you nor your offering. And it's at that point when he becomes angry. And I think this is confirmed for us by what happens next, because God talks to Cain. He says, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you but you must rule over it. This is, a, this is an intervention of sorts, okay? God is stepping in here because he sees there's a problem in Cain's heart. He knows what's going on both externally and internally, and so he steps in and talks to Cain. And this conversation, at least as it's recorded for us here by Moses, is completely one-sided. And so if, if Cain said anything we don't know, all we know is, is God's side of this conversation. His words are brief, but very, very important. Notice that he questions him as to why he's angry over being rejected. And this is just like what we saw back in chapter 3. God isn't asking this question to gain information. He knows why Cain is angry. He understands the intricacies of Cain's heart at this moment. And so why is he asking him this question? He's doing it to draw the truth out of Cain. He's doing it to draw Cain's attention to the real and deeper problem. And what is that real and deeper problem? It's his heart. He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? It's, It's a rhetorical question. The assumed answer is yes. If Cain's heart had motivated him to give a proper offering to God, then everything would have been just fine. But of course, that's not what he did, and God points that out. He says, if you don't do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And we talked about this verse very briefly back in chapter 3, if you remember. This word desire here is a critical word in his questioning. It, it, It refers to almost an animalistic kind of desire. Do you remember us talking about that? This this just wanting to own something, to have something, to conquer something. Here it's sin that wants Cain. It wants to own him. 
to master him, to conquer him fully. God pictures it as a deadly animal that is crouching at the door, waiting to pounce on him. He's he's picturesque so that you and I understand the severity of the situation. Cain is, is right on the precipice of destruction. Sin is right there waiting to take him. And this is supposed to help Cain see the problem in his heart. And God is even so kind as to give him the solution. Talk about grace and mercy being shown to a sinner beforehand. He says it wants to conquer you, Cain, but you must conquer it. You must rule over it. You must dominate it and keep it in check. This is his warning to Cain. But the next words in the text show us what Cain did with this warning. It's very, very brief. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Just like that. Barely any real comment. So briefly mentioned, the deed is done. Everything that God had said to Cain is completely ignored. And so now God comes back on the scene to talk with Cain again. And from verse 9 to verse 12, you're going to notice a lot of similarities to what we studied back in chapter 3 about God's conversation with Adam and Eve. And I'm not going to point them all out to you. It would be an interesting study for you just to sit down sometime and look through this. But, but just follow what happens. You'll see a few of them really because they'll stand out to you. Again, God starts with a question. Where is Abel your brother? And again, he knows where Abel his brother is. He's not asking the question to gain information. He's asking it to draw the truth out of Abel, or excuse me, out of Cain. He wants Cain to confess his sin, and Cain does respond, but it's with a lie and an excuse. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? He's so calloused, filled with lies here. And so God responds back. What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. God just simply confronts him with the murder. Since Cain won't confess it, God confronts him with the murder. And then God begins to issue a pronouncement against him, a detailing of what his life will be like from this point forward because of his sin. It's really three things. Number one, Cain is cursed. Now remember back to chapter 3, Adam and Eve were not cursed. Because of their sin. The serpent was cursed. The ground was cursed. But not Adam and Eve. They weren't cursed. But here, Cain is cursed. Personally. And this serves as a first clue of what you're going to see repeated over and over again now in these verses. That everything listed here is an intensification of what God pronounced against Adam and Eve back in chapter 3. Everything is is just upped. It's, It's intensified. It's made stronger. Now, God curses Cain directly and personally because of his sin. Number two, notice that the curse is connected to the ground, which is, of course, cursed from back in chapter 3. And the reason God says uh, that he does this is because the ground opened up its mouth to receive Abel's blood. You see that? It's as if, as if Cain and his murder reversed God's creative order. Because God had made the ground to give sustenance to man. Man was supposed to open his mouth to receive from the ground. And now everything's been turned on its head. And now God is, or the ground, excuse me, has been opening its mouth to receive the blood of of Abel. 
And so whatever strength is now left in the earth is taken away from Cain. It will no longer bear its strength to you. It had already been cursed, so I imagine it was diminished. But now it's diminished even more. For Cain, it's intensified. Number three, he will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Remember when, he, when Adam and Eve were in the garden, they lived a life of rest. Remember us talking about that? And they were driven out of the garden. That rest was removed, but they were still in Eden, the land. Now Cain is taken, the rest that Cain had is taken away even further. Now he's just going to wander like a fugitive. And Cain's reaction is dramatic. It, it, it really should stand out to you in the story how he responds. He says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. In the Hebrew, there's a little phrase here that says, read this with a pouty voice. Okay? That's a joke. That's a joke. Some of you are like writing that down. No. My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Notice, he still doesn't confess. He's been confronted with his sin, and yet there's still no acknowledgement. And note also that there is absolutely no sense of remorse communicated here at all. Who is he worried about? Himself. That's it. He's not worried about God. He's not worried about his parents who just lost a son. He's not worried about his brother whom he killed. He's only worried about himself. He thinks the punishment's too great. I mean, I just murdered my brother, that's all. (laughs) Really, does it have to be this bad? He's worried about the, the privileges that he's lost. And he's afraid of what is going to happen to him in the future. He he didn't cry when he murdered his brother, and yet here you see him basically crying over what's happened to him. And so God, and be quite honest, in in a in an act that I do not understand. God gives him an assurance that if anyone kills him, that that person will experience a sevenfold retribution from God. In other words, Cain, if you think what I've done to you is bad, if anyone kills you, it'll be seven times worse. A lot worse for you. It's it's an act of grace. I, I understand that. He doesn't deserve this. It's mercy because he deserves death right then and there but it seems hard for me to put my mind around God's response to Cain, and yet this is how God chooses to act. And then to make sure that it's clear that God is protecting him, he puts a mark on him so that no one who finds him will ever touch him. People say, what kind of mark is it? I don't know. Is it the first tattoo? I don't know. Whatever. Not sure. It doesn't matter. If you Google it, people believe me spend a lot of time debating it. Who cares? Whatever it is, the person who sees it would understand the significance and know that Cain is being protected by God and would leave him alone. And then the story ends with a very telling comment. The one that sets us up for our next tale. And that is that Cain walks away from the presence of the Lord and goes and lives in the land of Nod. That's it. That's the whole first tale right there. Now, we need to come back because remember what I said, these aren't just stories. This, this isn't just being told to you so you can be entertained by us. So someday somebody can put together a screenplay and make a movie out of it, okay? It's, it's not simply a story for story's sake. There's a point. 
And we need to understand what the point is. And I want to come back to the question that I posed at the beginning. Why wasn't Cain's heart right before God? Why didn't he want to serve him? Why didn't he want to please him? Why does Cain reject God? And remember what I said, that answering those questions will get us to the heart of what the true difference between these two people are. It will help us see the world like God sees it. And so let's just ask the question, what caused his rejection of God? This is it. This is the whole rest of the service right here. What caused his rejection of God? And as I thought about this and debated this and looked at everything the scriptures have to say about this question, we really come down to one of two primary suspects. Either he's rejecting God out of unbelief or he's rejecting God out of pride. One of the two. He either does not believe that God who and is what he says he is or he doesn't care because he's too preoccupied with himself. It's one of the two. Now, in favor of unbelief, we have the words of the writer of Hebrews that I showed you last week. Remember Hebrews 11.4? By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. I mean, you see it right there. The reason Abel did what he did was that he was motivated by faith. He believed that God really was who he said he was. And so that belief, that faith, motivates him to act accordingly. And though the writer of Hebrews doesn't say it this way, the implication is that that's not true of Cain. That Cain doesn't believe. And it's his lack of belief then that motivates him to live like he did. And please note then, and we're going to pause for a second. I want to take a side trail here. Note then that this teaches us something about the nature of unbelief. It's an important lesson to learn, and we're taught it all the way back in Genesis chapter 4. It teaches us something about unbelief. Remember, Cain knew God. He knew who God was. He had personally spoken to God. He is not an atheist, and yet he doesn't believe. I mean, think about this for a moment. He knows God but he doesn't believe. He doesn't have faith. And what that tells me is that unbelief is not a passive thing. It's an active thing. And that's a critical distinction to make in our minds as we think about those around us who are unbelievers. They're not just unbelievers by default. They're unbelievers by choice. And this is confirmed for us in passages, well, I could probably go to several, but the clearest is Romans 1, because in Romans 1, Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness do what? They suppress truth. There's a certain amount of truth that they have that they are pushing down. They are suppressing it so that they don't have to deal with it. Why? Because what can be known about God is plain to them. Why is it plain to them? Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. Why are they without excuse? It's because they've chosen to not believe. 
They've chosen to reject Him. They've taken the truth that God has made plain to them in their hearts and they have suppressed it in unrighteousness. And so unbelief, them I mean, exactly what you see Cain doing in Genesis 4. He's not acting in faith. He doesn't ultimately believe the things that he sees and knows firsthand. And so unbelief was my first suspect. But, but then there was also pride. Because clearly as you read through Genesis 4, Cain is only focused on one person. <laughs> there is no other person in, in Cain's mind than himself. He, everything he says, everything he does reflects this heart of pride. And so I thought, well, perhaps pride is what motivated him. Maybe that's the reason why he rejected God. So which one is it? Is it unbelief? Is it pride? Which one caused his rejection of God? Did pride lead to unbelief, which then led to rejection, which then led to murder and all the events we see after? Or does unbelief lead to pride, which leads to rejection, which leads to murder? Which way do we go? And someone asked me this last time after the service, what I thought, and, and I had an answer that I thought was correct. And as I wrestled through it this week, I wasn't satisfied with my answer. And after a while, I probably came to a realization that all the rest of you have had for ever, and I'm just the last one getting it. You can't separate unbelief and pride. You can't. They're two sides of the same coin. Just depends on which angle you want to look at it. To not have faith in God is the ultimate expression of pride. And to be proud is, by necessity, an expression of unbelief. You, you can't separate these comment or concepts. And so what we see here is that Cain is rejecting God because he is an arrogant unbeliever. Despite his upbringing, despite his training, so to speak, there in the garden, in the world around that God is a part of, he sees all these things, and yet he is an arrogant unbeliever. And you see this proud, unbelieving rejection of God throughout the story. It is shown in so many ways. You see it in his anger. He doesn't like the fact that he can't come to God on his own terms. He doesn't like it. It's not fair. It's not right. Why can't I do the thing I want to do? Why can you hold me accountable? And so he's angry. You see it in his indifference toward and disregard of God's words and warning. God comes to him personally and explains why he was rejected and what he needs to do. Which of us wouldn't love for God to come speak to us personally and say, look, you sinned, here's why you sinned, here's what you need to do to resolve it, here's how you can avoid it going forward. God does this for Cain, and yet Cain ignores it. He, he doesn't care about truth. He doesn't even want to know. You, you see it in his rebellion, particularly in the murder itself. Abel is the one who's killed. But I don't think Abel's the target. This personal opinion, I might be wrong. I don't think Abel's the target here. I think he's doing this as an act of rebellion against God himself. Nothing more. You, you don't like how I am? You don't like how I'm living? You don't like what I'm doing? Watch this. Boom. I killed one of your image bearers. Take that, God. You see it in his lies. 
God asks him a simple question, where is Abel? And he can't even come to the place where he can simply say what he did to the one who already knows. He lies to himself. He lies to God. He's he's lying without qualm here in the story. You see it in his self-pity. My punishment's greater than I can bear. He's like a child who doesn't care about the fact that they just disobeyed their parents. They only care about the fact that they're getting a spanking now, right? That's, that's all they're worried about. That's the only reason they're, they're crying and upset at this point. He feels bad for himself. He is so absorbed in self-pity over his self-induced circumstances. And then number six, you see it in his fear. He, he's worried about someone, someone killing him someday. And we haven't really talked about this yet, but... My assumption up to this point in the story is that you have Adam, Eve, Cain now, Abel's dead, and maybe some sisters. There's nobody else. Who's he afraid of? Is he afraid that, that his dad is going to come and kill him for, for killing his brother? Is he afraid that Eve is going to rise up and slay him? Is he just thinking ahead to the future where maybe there will be some other brothers or some nephews or cousins or something one day that that'll do this or that to him? What's he worried about? He strikes me here as being irrational and paranoid in the story. And that's just, I think, what you see. In all these ways, then, we see him rejecting God out of both unbelief and pride. And where does all of that lead him? Well, verse 16, it leads him to abandon his maker, to walk away and live a completely Godless life. Now, how does this help us understand the world around us differently? How does, how does this help us understand the difference in the two kinds of people that are represented here in this first tale? I'll give you three things, okay? There could be more, but I'll give you three. Number one, this helps me see the dividing line very, very clearly. Because either you believe or you don't. If belief in God is the dividing line ultimately between these two boys. You're either on one side of the fence or the other. You either choose to believe or you choose to reject. No one rides the fence, ever. You say, well, I'm still thinking about it. Okay, I'm glad you're thinking about it. I sincerely am. I hope that you accept Christ, but understand that until you accept him, you are choosing to reject him. That's it. Those are the only choices. You choose to accept or you choose to reject. And in that sense, then, our faith or our lack thereof is not simply a personal, private thing. It's publicly on display for everyone to see at all times. Number two, this helps me see that unbelief is not a default position. I mentioned this earlier. In other words, unbelief is not natural. It is a choice. You choose not to believe. You choose to reject him. In Genesis 4, Cain, who knew God, chose not to believe. He chose to reject God out of his lack of faith. You saw it in Romans 1 because everyone is given a knowledge of God. And they choose to suppress it in unrighteousness. Unbelief is not passive. It is active. And people will be held accountable for their choice of unbelief. And then number three... This helps me understand the various ways that people who don't believe in God respond to God. Because all six of these things are seen in the people who live and work around us every day. And so you'll have people who, they're angry at God. 
because this thing happened or that thing happened. They don't like the fact that, that they will be held accountable to him. That, that very concept is so distasteful to them that they just respond in anger and they hate God and anyone who claims to have any connection to him. You see it with people who are indifferent to him, who have heard the truth of the gospel over and over and over again, and they don't care. Suppress it. We don't, don't need to know. Don't want to know. You see it in the people who are living lives of rebellion. They've rejected God, and so they are doing everything that suits them. That's a key phrase right there. Everything that suits them to live their lives in rebellion. And that looks different, and that's hard for people to get their minds around. That looks different for for different folks. For some people, what suits them is outright wickedness that everyone, even unbelievers, look at and say, that's horrible. And for many other people, it's enough wickedness that most people don't really mind it. It just personally meets their pleasures and passions. That's all. They live their lives in rebellion against him as much as they can and as much that suits him. You see people who lie to themselves about God. They live their whole life as one big lie so that they don't have to deal with what's around them. You see people engulfed in self-pity over self-induced circumstances. And so they're on the counselor's couch or in the office reading this book because they're looking for an answer that they cannot find. Filled with self-pity because they are rejecting God and don't understand the root causes. They're happy if they can just soothe away the, the outer edges, if they can just pick all the fruits off the tree and medicate themselves to the point that they can't feel it anymore. Never willing to go back to the heart of the matter. And then you see people who live their lives in fear. Fear of the future. Fear of tomorrow. Fear of what's happening next. Fear if I do this, if I do that. They have no sense of confidence or assurance in anything. Do you know what all these people need? They need the gospel. When you are at work and you're surrounded by people and you see these expressions of their rejection of, to God around you, they don't, they don't just need your, hey buddy, it's going to be okay. They need the gospel. They need to know that despite their rejection of God, that God loved them so much that He came and died on the cross for their sins. He came and died for their rejection of Him. For their rebellion against Him. They need to be called to believe. Not just to have a mere mental assent. Oh yes, I I know that there's a God. That is not the faith we're talking about here. It's not just simply to accept these basic truths about... No, they need to be called to see Jesus as their one and only. As their all and only. That He is all they have and He is the only thing they have. Nothing more. Nothing less. Nothing different. They need to be called to repent to lay down their pride and accept a new Lord in their life because they have been living under their own lordship. They don't need self-help gurus or 12-step programs or spiritual advisors. They need Jesus. Guess what? That's what all of us need. Because if you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus, 
I'm sure that somehow, some way, in at least one, if not multiple, these things right here reflect your life. You can't live a life rejecting God and not experience this kind of fruit. It's going to show itself. Your choice to reject him will show itself. Mark it. But even for us who are believers, we, we struggle with these same things, don't we? Of not living our lives in full confidence that Jesus is our all and our only. And so we revert back and we become fearful and we feel self-pity and we live lies, lives of, I can't say it, we live a lie. There we go, that's what I'm trying to say. We live a lie in front of people. We're tempted to be drawn back to these things, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. The hymn writers knew it. This is, this is who we are. And so we're all constantly reminded, encouraged, and exhorted to be one with Jesus, to see Him as our all and our only. Yes. Nothing else will do. So if you're here today, you're not a believer in Jesus, I'm calling you to believe. I'm calling you to repent, to leave behind your life as it is, as it was, and to place all of your hope and faith and trust in Jesus alone. And if you're here today and you are a believer, and I'm reminding you as a brother in Christ, Jesus is it. He's all we've got. He's all we'll ever have. Never, ever take your eyes off of Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are reminded of what the ultimate difference in all between hum humanity really is. It comes back to whether or not we really believe in you. Are you our all and our only? Do we have anything else? For those who think that they can be something for themselves, that they can live their own lives, to, to follow their own desires, to chart their own course, they have set themselves down a path. They have chosen a life that leads to destruction. Many there are who will find it. But there are some, Lord, who, because of your grace and mercy and love, have heard the truth of what you have done for us and by your Spirit have been given the power to believe and to accept the Gospel, to place all of our faith in you, to know for the first time what it means to live lives without fear, to know that we've been accepted not because of our works, but because of your own purpose and grace. Lord, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the mercy and grace that's been shown to us in Jesus. Forgive us, Lord, when we, we begin to falter in our faith, begin to look to ourselves or to our circumstances or to other things. We revert right back into all of these things we see Cain doing here in Genesis 4. We forget that you are our all and our only. And so, Lord, this morning we want to be reminded, we want your Spirit to help us see that and for our faith to be strengthened as a result. Because we don't want to be like Cain, guilty of mere tokenism, of, of going through motions just so that we look good on the outside, but inside there's nothing. We want to be like righteous Abel, the one whom you commended 
as being righteous, not because of what he did, but because of his faith. And so we thank you for this example, Lord, right here at the beginning, at the beginning of it all. It's the gospel. The salvation is by faith alone, and there is nothing else. And so we are thankful for your word, for our time in it this morning. May you bless it and help us to know how we ought to live as a result. In Jesus' name, amen.